Hi, I'm Denise Danda and I'm a recent graduate of the mathematics program here at York University. I'm currently working as the communications and marketing assistant at the office of the dean here at Lasant, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today we have a very special episode to celebrate Earth Day and joining us is Dr. Marina Freire-Gormley, an assistant professor in the mechanical engineering department at Lasand. Dr. Freire-Gormley's research focuses on many topics that positively impact the environment, such as solar-powered water treatment systems and energy recovery systems for remote communities that lack access to grid electricity, which makes Earth Day a great opportunity for us to talk to her. Thank you for joining us today on this special episode of This is Lassonde in honor of Earth Day. Earth Day is an, an annual event on April 22nd to demonstrate support for environmental protection. Dr. Marina Freire-Gormley, we are very excited to have you here today. As we know, you have a lot of research that you do that is making a positive impact on the environment. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you, Denise, and everyone about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and our research in this field. So I know your work focuses a lot on the UN Sustainability Goal number six specifically, which is clean water and sanitation. And for those of you who don't know what that means, the UN has 17 goals that it is working towards, which are sustainable developmental goals or global goals, which are a collection of 17 goals designed to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. These are very important to Lausanne and the York community as we have pledged to make contributions to these sustainable development goals. So before we get into the nitty gritty details, could you please tell us a little bit about the research that you do in terms of water, energy and environmental systems? Because I know that these are very important to the UN and the goals that we're trying to work towards. Definitely. So for the research that my team works on, we work on these renewable energy powered desalination and water treatment systems. That one is the project that's the most aligned. And we also want to develop systems so that you can have an off-grid community and still have sufficient amounts of energy and clean drinking water for the communities. Some of the research that we've been working on in the past is with La Mancolona, Mexico, where we installed a desalination system powered by solar photovoltaics. And the research was really focused on how do we enhance these systems for their uh, water treatment components in a really low cost and sustainable way. And some of our newer projects were developing a pilot for Laos. Nice. Um, and also what I'd like to know is your, um, I read a bit about you online and I saw that you did make some contributions to the World Bank project evaluating Canada's regulatory indicators for sustainable energy. So could you please tell us a little bit more about what that was like? And what yeah, was that, this that was, was a about? really exciting project. The World Bank's RISE, so Regulatory Indicators for Sustainable Energy, gives a mark for all the different countries in terms of how ready they are for sustainable energy. And as part of that project, we needed to interview experts in the field and really assess how well Canada is doing in these different indicators. And since it is based on the entire country, one of the challenges is that Canada is really divided into provinces for the energy requirements. And so this is an area that really needs future research. How can we make sure that all of Canada is working towards these sustainability goals as opposed to each individual province and how do they compare and contrast? Interesting. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to take it a little bit back and ask you from the very beginning of your career, when did you know that engineering 
more specifically mechanical engineering was the major that you wanted to pursue? Because I'm trying to find the link between what you do now and where you started. So if you could tell, please tell us a bit more about what that was like when you started out. Yeah, definitely. When I was in undergrad, I was pretty curious and exploratory about exactly what field I wanted to go into. In fact, I had had some inspiration that some of my classmates and alumni, they had finished their undergrad and then gone on to medical school. So I was thinking maybe biomed. So you might be wondering, how did I end up here? Eventually, as I was doing my undergrad, I really realized that energy systems is a really exciting topic that has a lot of opportunity. And it can also have a really big impact in the world because there are so many people worldwide that lack access to electricity. And I really saw that electricity permeates and energy use, it really permeates every aspect of our lives. And if we can target and improve that area, especially for communities that lack access, then we can have a really big impact and improve the lives of many people in the world. So in my undergrad, I chose the option. There was an option in my undergrad in engineering science called the energy option. And that gave us more of a systems level perspective of how energy systems work and how they interact. And I really enjoyed that aspect. So I got a little bit involved in this uh, policy related course in fourth year, which was focused on how do we do innovation and how do we implement all of these sustainability goals. And that really spurred my interest uh, to eventually pursue a master's on carbon capture and storage technology. And then near the end of my master's, I really enjoyed research, but I wanted a project that uh, was a bit more closely related to a given community. So that's how I started working on the solar-powered desalination system. And you might be wondering, what is desalination? So desalination is the process where we purify saline water, so salty water that might be in an ocean, but there can also be salts in groundwater. And if it's in groundwater, it's called brackish water. And one of the challenges is that if you drink water that has a really high saline content, like a lot of salts, it can cause other health problems like kidney stones or hypertension. So instead of just drinking directly from that groundwater that has high amounts of minerals, it's better that we can treat it to desalinate it. And the community had two options. They could either drink the water from the groundwater without treating it, or they could rely on a truck that had driven about 400 kilometers from town to town, maybe take like two or three days by the time it reaches the town. And that's uh, really expensive. And it really takes a lot of, uh, it's not ideal because you don't even know the quality of that water by the time it's coming off that truck after two or three days in the heat and the daylight and maybe a bunch of bacteria grew in that tank over the time. That's interesting. So what I'd like to know more specifically about is your work in Mexico, because you did mention the desalination and you did explain that to us, what exactly that entails and what that means and how that benefits people, the communities and everything like that. So what I'd like to know more specifically is your work in Mexico. How was that and what were your findings there? Yeah, so in that project, when I started the working on the research, it was an ongoing project. So they had already implemented a desalination system that uses solar photovoltaic panels. And the innovation in this design is that instead of storing the electricity, 
So taking the energy from the sun, tra like transferring it into the solar panel and then into a battery, it's very expensive to have enough storage to run a reverse osmosis, which is a desalination uh, membrane, to run it continuously. If you were to design it with that much battery storage, you would end up having a very high cost of the system. And it wouldn't be very reliable because, say, lead-acid batteries only have a design life about five to seven years. So it's much better if we store the end product, which is the clean drinking water that the community needs in a very large water tank that has the appropriate treatment, for example, UV LEDs, and uh, making sure that we can keep that water clean in the tank. So this system, it runs intermittently when the sun is shining. And then as the sun starts going down, the system turns off and then we just make it into a safe state overnight. And when the sun shines again, we turn it on again. But this intermittency was not the way the reverse osmosis membranes were designed to operate for the long term. So reverse osmosis membranes have been used. They're actually the predominant desalination technology in industry since the 1970s. And those large-scale systems are designed to operate continuously. And when we operate it intermittently, the predominating knowledge was that we would create a really large amount of buildup on this membrane, which would clog the membrane and prevent the water from being desalinated well. So my research was to develop better ways of shutting down the system and turning it on again and understanding how we can minimize the buildup of foulants or clog things that clog the membrane so that we can operate it in the longer term at a lower cost. And the secondary goal was to design these systems better for many different communities. So part of the research in my team now is to look at how can we design the membrane in a better way for this intermittent operation? And how can we ensure that when we install a system in a new place, that it's meeting the needs of the community and that we can create a really robust and reliable design optimization approach so that the system will operate for 25 or 30 years with minimal operator intervention. Wow. Um, what I would like to know at this point is, are there any other places that this type of system would work and um, what the next steps are from like what you have done so far? Yeah. So they're very relevant for coastal communities. They can be installed for seawater. You need a few other pretreatment methods, but they have been implemented for island communities and also for coastal communities that have infiltration of the seawater into their groundwater system. They can tend to have really high uh, dissolved mineral content in their water system and also any very arid regions that their groundwater system has high salinity. So these are all regions. As long as there's a really high solar insulation, uh, then you can install these types of solar-powered reverse osmosis systems. In terms of where the research is going, I think it's important that we can expand how many communities can use these types of systems by changing the types of renewable power that's powering the system. So we're also looking at how can we include, say, wind power or other power generation methods and really looking at expanding the types of water treatment methods as well. So if we look at the Canadian northern communities, a lot of them have fresh water, like maybe they're next to a lake or a river. Uh, so that requires a different set of water treatment methods. 
but the overall concept is able to be transferred by using different sources of renewable power and uh, still creating a really reliable water option. Interesting. So I'd like to move a bit away from that and talk to you about the machine learning technology. So I've read that you'd also like to add machine learning technology into water and energy systems. So could you please explain what that means, first of all, and how that would improve the systems as they work right now? Definitely. So machine learning is a set of ways that we can predict how a system will behave over time based on how it's operating now and using prediction methods. And it's like another way of thinking about this problem is that you can have all of this operating data from all of these different renewable powered desalination uh, plants and then help design new systems and also improve the operating system so that if the system is already running and it's starting to show signs of fouling or degradation, then you could have some type of an alarm system or an intervention that you would do immediately. So in that way, you can predict, oh, there's a failure coming up. We need to do some remedy. And uh, same with the machine learning on the renewable energy side. Like if you can identify, oh, there's a storm coming, like the light levels have changed enough that there's now going to be a thunderstorm in like 10 minutes. Maybe you would do a full system shutdown immediately so that the membranes are in a safer state than if you had just operated the system continuously because you said, oh, daylight's from, say, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. We're going to run continuously for that whole time. But then if you can include a few machine learning techniques, you might be able to say, okay, the Based on our different sensors, we notice that the cloud cover is increasing. We're going to do a safe shutdown for the next 12 hours until the next day when it might be sunny again. Okay, so you're speaking about solar energy right now. And um, I would like to know like, what new technologies, well, what potential new technologies, energy technologies could we see in the near future to like, combat some of these issues or even to make the technologies work even better? And um, by the technologies, I'm referring to the machine learning technologies in this instance. Yeah. So for some of these technologies, if we can have uh, better designs of the membranes themselves, then they might not catch all of these foulants. So if we can prevent the buildup of biofoulins or scalants on the membrane, then we can decrease the lifetime cost of the system. And if we can increase the lifespan of these membranes, that means that the community doesn't need to look into shipping a new membrane to their community since they're off-grid and remote. It's quite expensive to do that process. And another area is these Industrial scale reverse osmosis systems rely on a lot of chemical clean cleaning agents. And since in a remote off-grid community, you don't really have access to those chemicals in the first place. And then the safe disposal, disposal of those chemicals is also a concern. Then it's much better if we can operate the system without a large amount of chemicals. So that's another area that we're like designing these systems to consider the safe operation and long-term operation, considering the context where this system is being used. So all of this sounds very complicated. And I'm just curious to know how you manage the logistics of this. Like how big is your team? And yeah, how do you do all of this? So right now we have eight graduate students and five undergraduate students working with the team and uh, bringing on a postdoc. So we have a pretty large group of 
students and uh, we all work together. I think in graduate school and when you're even an undergrad, getting involved in research is really fun because it becomes a team approach. And uh, it's also not just me, like I have a lot of research collaborators and colleagues, and uh, that's a really exciting way to do research because you can kind of build off each other's ideas, have a lot of synergy, and then come up with solutions that no one person could have come up with on their own. Okay, nice. So which lab do you work in? So I lead the Frere Gormley lab. And our research is based at York University in the Lausanne School of Engineering in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Interesting. So what I'd like to talk to you about now is your work with Academics Without Borders, because you have spoken about your work with students. And I'd like to hear a bit more about that. Could Could you please give us an overview of the organization and what exactly they do? Yeah. So Academics Without Borders is a NGO, and their goal is to really increase Uh, the academic level in all the different countries that are low and middle income by providing training and support to faculty members in these different countries. So Academics Without Borders is a really exciting project. It's a really exciting organization. And originally they had a program for global health where colleagues had set up a program to support researchers in more of the medical and health-related fields. And many of these member institutions requested for support on the engineering side. So I helped co-lead this program called Strengthening Engineering Research, where we run a series of workshops with the faculty members. And then over the time span of about one year, they work on a project. And as part of the training, they develop a research proposal that then gets evaluated for funding. And once they've been funded, then they spend one year with a mentor that's usually a professor or a researcher in Canada, and they help them implement that research project for the one year. And that really gives them kind of like a jumping board to be able to apply for bigger grants and also expand their network and develop some more skills in research mentorship, research planning, and research uh, projects. Interesting. And what I'd like to know now is what barriers to education you have been working to combat? Yeah. So I think, well, with Academics Without Borders, we've been working with the Mbara University of Science and Technology in Uganda. That's where we offered the program the first time. And the second time we offered it at the Bahadar Institute of Technology in Ethiopia. And one of the barriers to accessing education is making sure that the graduates of these different universities, they're able to join industry and really think about entrepreneurship skills. So some of the program also includes topics relating to that as well, and really helping the faculty members to develop a really student-centric approach to their research to ensure that the technologies that they're developing will directly help the communities around them and also engage the students so that they have the skill set to be able to contribute to their local community as well when they graduate. What I really love about your work, um, if I may just say real quick, is that you are working towards achieving a lot of these United Nations sustainability goals, one of them also including 
quality education and what you've just said. And what actually this makes me think is like, how do you coordinate all of this? Like you're an assistant professor, you do a lot of research. It's a lot of work to handle. So what are some of the challenges you've had to overcome? What are some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome? I think it's a great question. I think being an assistant professor is it's usually a lot of things that are juggling in the air and uh, I just try my best and try to keep a positive attitude and I get a lot of joy from working with students and also working on challenging ideas that uh, can have an impact. So I think that gives a positive feedback loop to working on all these different projects. So what would you say was, what was the calling about for you? What inspired you to pursue this career and this research and everything that you're working in right now? I think one of the slogans from my undergraduate program was that instead of engineers rule the world, it's like engineers for the world and really trying to make the world a better place. And I think that's what really drives my interests and hard work towards these projects. I really love that. And one thing I'd also like to talk about with you before we close off, because I know we're running out of time, is a little bit about your research on COVID-19 aerosol transmission in indoor environments. This is something that's very, very important right now, seeing as we are still in the pandemic. So could you please tell us a bit about your findings on this? Definitely. So this has been a really exciting and interesting research topic. We're modeling how the COVID-19 aerosols move around indoor environments, and we try to consider how the Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems can be better designed to minimize the risk of transmission. And one of the things we noticed when we were doing the literature review and really trying to understand the problem at the start of the pandemic was that there's a lot of epidemiological modeling to see how, as a human population and a larger society, how is it transmitting from one infection source to another But there have been a lot of super spreader events, like there was a choir in the U.S. where one person was infected. And then by the end of the day, like 95% of the choir ended up getting infected. And this was before people were wearing masks, but there was no way that that person had had face-to-face contact with all 50 members of the choir during like a two-hour span. So since there had been so much debate in the scientific community and the CDC and World Health Organization about whether aerosol transmission was even a risk or not. I thought it was a really interesting area for research and also really trying to bridge that gap between the mathematical modeling world that really looks at risks of infection and what is our, like, what is the infectivity rate and trying to understand at a more micro level inside a home or inside a school or inside a office building, what is the risk of one sick person transmitting it to another? And I guess because I know a lot of teachers, uh, have a lot of family members who are also elementary school teachers, I could understand a bit about how important it is for kids to be in school and to have that social interaction, but also to make sure that the teachers and the adults and, and then their grandparents, when they go home to play with their family members that everyone stays healthy at the at their over over their lifespan right so we want to minimize the risk of transmission of COVID-19 and also other airborne diseases if we can design better HVAC and better heating ventilation air conditioning for the indoor environment then we can also help keep everyone healthy for the longer term too even once this pandemic is hopefully over. 
That is so interesting. And um, I just want to thank you for joining us today. But before I let you go, what parting words of advice would you give students, hopeful students who want to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, I would say that be really curious and try lots of different things. During my undergrad, I was really involved in the community and tried out a lot of different clubs. And you don't need to know exactly what you're going to work on. If you start doing a few things and then trying it out and then talking to other people, you'll eventually figure out what you really love doing. And once you find that and you put your heart into it, you can really achieve a lot of really exciting things and have some really great experiences. Thank you, Dr. Marina Freer-Gormley for joining us today. And that is it for your Earth Day episode of This Is Lassonde. Catch us next time. Bye. Thanks, Denise. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Dr. Marina Freer-Gormley on this special Earth Day episode. I hope her work inspired you to reflect on small changes you can make in your own life that could have a positive impact on the environment and the planet. Until next time, thank you for listening to This is the Sound.